Yeah, you can be seated. Good morning, Life Church. It is great to see you this morning. Um, we're welcoming you if you're in the room, and as Matt and others have already done, we're welcoming you if you're online with us today. We're just grateful that you're with us as we gather around the truth of the gospel and to hear from the word of God this morning. And so if you have a Bible with you, or a way to get the Bible in front of you, we'd encourage you to turn this morning to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 5 through 11 this morning, and I know you'll be served well if you can have that in front of your face to track with me and with it as we walk um, through this great and glorious passage this morning. Um, a few summers ago, I remember one Saturday afternoon uh, sitting out on my back deck. Um, in my memory, this was like a picture-perfect early summer afternoon. Uh, my lawn was freshly mowed, so everything looked clean and orderly outside. It wasn't too hot yet, and so it was really just like a beautiful, beautiful day. I remember sitting um, on my deck listening to the Red Sox play and uh, drinking a cold beverage and just enjoying being outside. And as I was doing that, I saw that um, the mail truck was coming up the street and doing what the mail truck does as it comes up the street, right? It would just slow down a little bit as it got to each mailbox, and then the postman would you know, open the mailbox and shove in you know, a stack full of bills and tabloid magazines and whatever else somebody was receiving at their house that day, close the mailbox and drive on to the next house. And so I was just watching the postman do this, house after house after house, until finally um, he got to my across-the-street neighbor's house. And what I hadn't realized at the time, but what I saw as it unfolded was the fact that my across-the-street neighbor was waiting and ready for the postman to arrive. And so as the postman drives up, he charges out of his garage and engages the postman in what I would only call a confrontation. Now, I was far enough away that I didn't hear anything that was spoken, but I could see the way my neighbor was like stomping around and waving his arms that he was agitated about what I have no idea, right? Perhaps my neighbor and this postman were engaged in, you know, a centuries-old blood feud between their families of some kind, like a Montagues and Capulets kind of situation. More likely, I'm imagining my neighbor was just upset about the delay in the delivery of his Us Weekly. I don't really know, but what I could tell you for sure is that my neighbor was angry and upset with this postman. And so their confrontation lasted for about three minutes the whole time. I'm sitting there wondering if I need to go over and like try to intervene in some way. Ultimately, I elected not to, mainly because I wasn't sure if my neighbor was you know, a concealed carry guy or not. And so I just wanted to you know, be safe and secure. Um, but eventually, my neighbor let the postman off the hook. He went back to his garage. The postman kept driving, delivering mail to the next house, and then the next house, and then the next house, until finally he disappeared down the street. And the reason that struck me two years ago, the reason I'm telling you about it now, is because it occurred to me as I watched all of this unfold that, that nobody ever celebrates it when the mail arrives on time. Right? Nobody ever celebrates the postman when he or she does their job well. Right? There were all these other houses on my street that day, dozens of houses, and not one of the residents of those houses came out of their house to thank the postman or to congratulate him for doing his job well in a timely and efficient manner. No, the only person who spoke up and who was irritated with the postman was the one person who was frustrated by the fact that the guy didn't do the job the way that he wanted him to do it in the time that he wanted him to do it in. And I imagine that's true with a lot of other occupations as well, right? I mean, frankly, we, we just don't really celebrate people when they do their job. 
right? When the barista at Starbucks hands you your latte, she is quickly forgotten unless she gets your order wrong. The staff at your dry cleaners, you don't give them much thought unless they happen to lose your favorite shirt, right? Like people who, who do their job well, we just kind of ignore them. They just kind of blend into the background of our lives. And we only really think about people when they do their job poorly. And the reason that is significant is because I think in reality we run the same risk when it comes to thinking about the life and death of Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't really notice when people do their jobs in the same way that we don't really notice when Jesus does his job. And frankly, that's what we think Jesus did. Right? We think of the second person of the Trinity, the divine son who took on human flesh and lived a perfect life and died an unjust substitutionary death in our place. When we think about Jesus doing that, we basically think that Jesus did what he was supposed to do. And while we acknowledge in principle that Jesus doing all of that is a stunning and almost incomprehensible reality, when it comes to the day-by-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute thoughts and feelings of our lives, I think a lot of us are really pretty content just thinking about Jesus as somebody who did his job. I mean, what else was Jesus going to do, right? He's the son of God. He was supposed to die for us. Is it that big of a deal, really, when Jesus simply does what he is expected to do? Well, my prayer for us this morning as we think about and look at God's word together is that we would not merely be impressed by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. I pray that we would be simply stunned by it. And so I'm grateful that the passage that's before us today as we just continue to walk through Paul's letter to the Philippians is a passage that sets our minds fully on the beauty and on the glory of Jesus. And I pray that we, that we really apply ourselves to thinking about who Jesus is revealed to be in this passage because it's when we, when we begin to comprehend the fullness of his beauty and glory that we will be stirred in our minds and hearts and souls about what Jesus has done for us. And the same way that you would, you would stand up and notice if it wasn't your postman, but the postmaster general delivering you your mail. And the same way that you would notice if it wasn't just a barista, but the CEO of Starbucks handing you your latte. In that same way, may we recognize the incredible beauty and glory of Jesus, the one who did come in human form and live for us and die for us. Let's read Paul's words in Philippians 2, 5 through 11 this morning. The Apostle Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, this is God's word for us. Let's pray as we begin to study it together today. Heavenly Father, I do simply pray that you would give us eyes that are open to the beauty of your son's person and the glory of your son's work for us. If in any of us, in any way, these things are casual or comfortable or familiar, I pray, Lord, that you would stir our hearts anew to delight in these truths today and to delight ultimately and most fully in who Jesus is. And so I ask you, God, to remove the scales from our eyes that keep us from seeing his beauty and his glory. I pray that you would soften the hardness of our hearts, that you would unstop our deaf ears, that we may feel and hear what is true of him. We pray that your spirit would allow those things in our midst this morning. We pray that in the name of Christ. Amen. So this passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it's one that is just really, really precious to me. Um, It's one that might be precious to you too. It's one that can be precious to you too. Um, I would say if there's ever a moment in your life when your affection for Jesus seems to be waning, this is the place you should go. If there's ever a moment in your life when it feels to you that your heart for the Lord is growing cold, this is the place you should go. You should just set your eyes and your mind and your heart on who Jesus is revealed to be here because, man, if there is any hope at all that the Holy Spirit of God might awaken our hearts to love Jesus more fully, it's going to be as Jesus is revealed through texts like this one. And so I pray that this passage will be for you as it is for me, just the key to unlocking wonder and amazement in the life and in the death of Jesus. We're really on holy ground when we talk about things like this. I told Kristen this morning, I think if the Lord asked me to stand up and preach from this passage every day for the rest of my life, I would be able to do it because the truths here are just glorious, and I really pray that we, we see that. What I want you to notice as we kind of get oriented in this famous passage is that the portrait of Jesus that is painted here is in the shape of a letter V. And what I mean is that there is a downward slope and an upward slope to who Jesus is portrayed to be here. There's descent and there is ascent. And so in verses six through eight, we go down as we consider the profound humility of Jesus. And then in verses nine through 11, we come back up as we consider the exaltation of Jesus or the glorification of Jesus. And so let's set our mind on those two slopes of the V for a minute here. We're gonna talk about verse five. We will eventually come back to it, but let's begin in verse six as we think about just the downward slope of the life of Jesus. Really, we're thinking about the humility of Jesus first in his incarnation. Read verse six with me again. Paul, he says, 
who, and that just points back to Jesus. So Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now I want to note two things as we think about that one verse. First, we're going to hear this word form. In my translation, it's the word form three times in verses six, seven, and eight. And every time Paul uses that word, he means that Jesus corresponds to the reality of what he is describing. And so in verse six, he says Jesus was in the form of God. That means that Jesus was fully God, right? Like he corresponds on a one-to-one basis with God. In verse seven, Jesus is gonna say, or Paul's gonna say that Jesus took the form of a servant. That means that Jesus really was, in reality, a servant. And then in verse eight, he's gonna say that Jesus was found in human form. That's again, his way of saying that Jesus was fully, truly human. Even as he was fully, truly God, he was fully and truly a human person. And so that's the first thing that we just need to wrestle with here. Paul is describing who Jesus was in his essence, in his truth. And then the second thing we need to note about verse six is that, that Paul is saying that though he was fully God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the picture here that comes to my mind is, is the picture of a young child who's like holding on to like the, the monkey bars on the playground at school, right? And when you're holding on to the monkey bars at the playground at school, like you grasp as tightly as you can to those monkey bars because if you let go of that bar, you plummet to the ground, right? But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, though he was truly God, he did not grasp onto equality with God and hold onto it. Instead, he was open-handed about that reality. And that's why Paul says in verse seven, he didn't, he didn't grasp onto the status or the privilege that comes to him that is due him because he is fully God. Instead, verse seven, he emptied himself by taking the form, the reality of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now when Paul says that Jesus emptied himself, he of course does not mean that Jesus emptied himself of his divine nature. Jesus did not cease to be God in any way. He didn't empty himself of his deity. He didn't empty himself of his divine characteristics or attributes simply He became what he was not by being born in the likeness of men, by taking the form, the reality of a servant. And so he emptied himself of his claim to divinity, not the reality of divinity, but his claim to divinity. As God, he was worthy of privilege and status and honor, and he emptied himself of that claim so that he could come humbly in human form. This is the stunning reality of the incarnation of Jesus, right? Though Jesus is divine royalty, he robed himself in human flesh. Though Jesus is without beginning or end, he chose to confine himself to time and to tense by coming in human form in the likeness of men. It's the incarnation of Jesus. And I just pray this morning, that your heart and mine would behold the wondrous truth of Christ Jesus in human form. Right, the all-powerful sovereign of the universe 
who holds the world in his hand, who holds everything in existence together. He came into his creation as a frail baby. The limitless I am who was and is and is to come. He gave himself a birthday. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What humility our Savior had in doing that. But his humility is not done. It's not exhausted. We're not down at the bottom of that letter V yet because in verse eight, Paul points us to the humility of the crucifixion. He says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Now to us, the cross has become a fairly bland and ordinary symbol, if we are honest. It's a symbol that we wear on jewelry, that adorns our living rooms and our church buildings and our cemeteries, right? We are familiar with and comfortable with the symbol of the cross, But in the time of the Apostle Paul, that was certainly not true. In the time of the New Testament, the cross was still an absolutely despicable symbol, one that polite people simply didn't talk about, much less think about or embrace as we have come to embrace it. And so the cross, it was the the form of punishment that was reserved for the worst of the worst in the Roman Empire. Roman citizens could not be crucified legally unless they were guilty of high treason against the emperor and only then if the emperor dictated that they should be crucified. Otherwise, crucifixion was reserved for, for scoundrels and foreigners, Rome's worst criminals, in other words. And polite Roman citizens even refused to discuss the cross because it was such a despicable and shameful symbol. In fact, this is, this is what uh, the ancient Roman orator Cicero once said about the cross. Now you can think of Cicero as like the ancient Roman equivalent of a talk show host, right? He's just somebody who comments on what life is like. And this is what Cicero said about the cross. Around the time of Paul, he said, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. Indeed, the mere mention of the cross that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. Do you hear that? Like Roman citizens shouldn't even mention the cross because it's not worthy of him. Right? His status as a Roman privilege, the, 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 or of a Roman citizen, the status of a free man is too high, it's too great for him to be associated even with this word, cross. Yet according to Paul, Jesus Christ, the infinitely worthy Son of God, the creator of all things, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. I think we're familiar with the great agony that the cross surely involved for Jesus. But what Paul would have us fix our eyes on is the far greater shame of the cross. More than physical pain, more than torment, was shame, was humiliation. That's what Jesus endured when he went to the cross. 
for us. And again this morning, I pray that that's not something that you're simply comfortable with and casual about. I pray that that is something that stuns us and moves us. In our culture, we have categories that allow us to think about heroic self-sacrifice, right? Heroic self-sacrifice, that's something that, that makes some sense to us. When it is justifiable, then it's something that we celebrate. And so for example, if my youngest son, Carson, were like somehow for some bizarre reason like arbitrarily condemned to death, not because of anything that he'd done, I'm really picturing here like a sort of like a Hunger Games style day of reaping sort of situation where his number or name is just drawn randomly and he is, he is chosen for death. Like I think, I, I would like to imagine that if something like that were to happen, that I would volunteer to die in his place. I'd like to think that I would offer myself as his substitute. And if I were to do that, like we would all recognize that that makes some sense, right? That, that is a rational while heroic act of self-sacrifice, one that seems appropriate for a father to die in the place of his son. You would probably do the same thing for your child if you were given the opportunity. That makes sense to us. But the cross, it doesn't make sense to us because the cross does not fit into our categories of heroic self-sacrifice. We, in fact, don't have categories for the humble, almost irrational self-sacrifice of Jesus. See, Jesus dying in our place on the cross, that's not a father offering to give his life for his son. No, that's the offended party offering to give his life for the offending party in a tragic cosmic crime. And so the best I can do on that is just imagine that, you know, take Carson and James off the table and think about James and you for a moment. Let's imagine for a moment, this is an awkward illustration, but it's the closest I can come for you. Let's imagine for a moment that I murder in cold blood somebody in your family. Or like I just take their life with my bare hands because I want to. I'm guilty, I'm condemned, and I'm put on death row for that. Now, if that were to happen, like if I were to kill somebody in your family and I sit justly condemned for that, you might, by the grace of God, find it in your heart to forgive me for doing that. Maybe. That would be a miracle if you did. But you might, in your heart, find it possible to forgive me. But you would never, in a million years, offer to take my place on death row. You would never in a million years offer to go to the electric chair or to face lethal injection or whatever North Carolina does for capital punishment. I actually don't even know if we have capital punishment because I'm new here, but you get the point, right? Whatever we do, you would never offer to take my place because I've offended you, like I've sinned against you. I've hurt somebody who is near and dear to you. That's a much closer approximation to what Jesus has done for us. Right, Jesus Christ, the high king of heaven, every single sin that I have ever committed, it's been a sin against him. Right, everything that I've ever done or not done that was unholy, everything I've ever felt or not felt that was unholy, every time I have failed to center my life around him, every time I have failed to say the things that I ought not to say and, or that I ought to say, and every time I have failed to refrain from saying the things that I ought not to say, all of those sins have been against him. Yet he chose, as the offended party in that relationship, to offer his life as a substitute for me, the offending party in that relationship. 
We simply have no categories for such radical and almost irrational self-sacrifice. Yet this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. And again this morning, I pray that we're just not numb to the force of this. Like our sins, every one of them were against him. Yet he is for us. Even while we were against him at the very cost of his life. He was found in human form. He endured the humiliation of the cross so that he could take us off of death row and seat us at the table of his heavenly father so that his former enemies could share in his family inheritance. And I do this morning, I pray that you've understood and believed in this humble love and grace from Jesus. I've prayed that you've seen exactly why we adorn our buildings and our cemeteries and our homes and our jewelry with the cross. Because it is a picture of Christ's wonderful love and grace for us. And if if you're with us today and you, you haven't believed in that, I pray this morning that you would turn from your sin and turn in faith to the Savior who loved you so completely that he died in your place while you were at your worst, while you were still against him, who loved you so much that he emptied himself for you and was found in human form for you and humbled himself to death on the cross for you. I pray that today you would turn to him in faith. And for all of us, I hope that we would see that because Jesus has done this, God has highly exalted him. That's why verse nine begins with that word, therefore. Because Jesus has descended through his incarnation to his crucifixion, to the very bottom of the letter V, he now ascends to the highest place, to glory. That's what Paul says beginning in verse nine. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, super exalted him, that's what the Greek says, and bestowed on him the name of that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, God the Father has restored Jesus to the lofty, elevated status and rank that he had before he emptied himself and came in human form. And more than that, God the Father has bestowed upon Jesus the name Lord that is above every name. At the announcement of Jesus' name, every creature will bow in glad submission to him, whether that creature is above the earth or on the earth or under the earth. That means heavenly celestial beings, human beings like us, or people who are lying in the grave. When Jesus' name, Lord, is announced at the end of history, every one of us will bow in glad submission before him, and every single tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. And so Paul is describing the day when all creatures recognize the worth and the splendor and the glory of Jesus and when we respond by worshiping Jesus. Now in our culture today, conversation about worship is becoming increasingly tricky. 
And the reason I say that is because our age is becoming more and more secular. And one of the, one of the symptoms of our secular age is the fact that the people in our culture tend to see worship is something that religious people do, but something that irreligious people don't do, right? And so, so worship is something that happens in a building like this one or on a live stream like this one, on a day like this one, but it's not something that bleeds into the rest of life. And so the secular age that we live in would have us believe that irreligious people don't worship. It's only religious people who worship. But that's simply not true. Everyone worships whether we are religious or irreligious, whether we are faithful or skeptical, all of us worship something because all of us say that something is worthy of our worship, right? We ascribe worth and value and glory to something. I've always been struck since the first time I read it by the way the American novelist David Foster Wallace talked about this when he was uh, speaking. This is from his commencement address at Kenyon College in Ohio in 2005. So it's a little bit dated now, but Wallace, who was not a Christian by any means and who would just a few years after saying these things actually tragically take his own life, he still put his finger on the truth here in a way that's so profound. This is what he said. Remember, he's talking to a room full of college graduates and their parents, right? And he says this. He says, here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships, he said. The only choice we get is what to worship. And, he adds, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship be it JC, Jesus Christ, or Allah, be it Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some infrangible set of ethical principles. Now, you don't need to know what any of that means. I barely do. But he says, the only compelling reason for choosing one of those things is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And then he goes on as he continues to talk to this room full of, you know, up-and-coming students. He goes on to describe how fruitless it is to worship the things of this world. He says if you worship money and stuff, then you're just never going to have enough money and stuff. If you worship beauty and sexual allure, then you're just always going to feel ugly. If you worship power, you're always going to feel weak. If you worship control, you're always going to feel helpless. If you worship a relationship, then you're always going to be disappointed in the relationships that you have. Why is that? Well, it's because those things are not worthy of our worship. They don't hold up to the expectations that we place on them when we worship them. They can't handle our trust and our devotion. In other words, they let us down in the end. But Jesus Christ, and only Jesus Christ, is worthy of our worship. And see, this is where David Foster Wallace is is wrong because this is where the, the wicked mother goddess and the four noble truths and whatever else where they can't actually help you Because it's only Jesus Christ who's given the name that is above every name. It's only at the name of Jesus Christ that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and worship. It's only to Jesus Christ that every tongue will confess that he's Lord. And see, friends, there will be a day 
when all of us, whether we've claimed atheism or some other world religion or the Christian faith, there will be a day when every single one of us will realize that that is true. There will be a day when every creature on the face of the earth recognizes that Christ is Lord. And for those of us who have, in this life, trusted him in faith, that day will be glorious. But for those of us who have not, it will be terrible. And so I ask you this morning, do you long to see and to worship the exalted Jesus? Does your heart yearn for him above anything and everything else? Do you long to recognize his glory and his worth? I pray that you do. Because he and only he is worthy of our worship. So what do we do with this right now? What are we to make of these truths? Before we walk out of here today, I want us just to consider three points of application from this passage. First, perhaps most simply, we should believe the truths of this passage. In other words, we should believe that Jesus Christ was the humble son of God who came in human form to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death in our place, and to rise again to glory. We should believe that Jesus Christ is the supreme Lord over all things. We should believe that Jesus Christ has been given the name that is above every name. And we should recognize that we will believe this sooner or later. There will be a day when every tongue confesses that these things are true. And so I urge you to believe this morning that you should not wait until it is too late. That you should now, with saints from age to age, say that Christ is Lord. But I should tell you, believing this, it will both gain you something and cost you something. But it's gonna cost you something because when you confess that Christ is Lord, when you acknowledge that Christ alone is Lord, then you have to also acknowledge that you are not. And there are pockets in my heart and in yours that long to cling to the fact that we're just a little bit in charge. But the truth is that if Jesus is Lord, then James cannot be. And so there cannot be an area of my life hidden somewhere in the deep recesses of my soul in which I'm clinging to my own lordship and refusing to let go of that idea that I'm in charge. How are you this morning resisting the lordship of Jesus Christ? And how can you bring your life into glad submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ? He is Lord. He has been given the name that is above every name. And if Christ is Lord, then he's Lord of everything, not just most things, not just the things that are convenient to make him Lord of. He is Lord of all. And so if you confess now that Christ is Lord, it will cost you the right to pretend that you are Lord. But it will gain you something far better. It will gain you, if I'm looking for a word, peace. 
See, one of the truths in life is that things fall apart. I mean, that's just a reality in your life and in mine. Our lives, they don't drift towards order. And so if things are going pretty well for you today, congratulations, just wait. There will be a day when they are not going well. And more likely than things going well for you today is the fact that there's some part of your life, some relationship, some situation, some challenge you're facing, some burden, some struggle with sin, where it just feels like everything is about to fall apart at the seams. And brothers and sisters, I just want to say to you, that's the normal experience of the human life because in humanity, things fall apart. But if you confess that Jesus is Lord, then you can sleep at night knowing that when things fall apart, there is a Lord of heaven who is ready to pick those things up and put them back together again. And so in the challenges that you face, and the trials and suffering that come, and maybe they're in your life today, if not today, just wait for tomorrow. When you confess that Christ is Lord, you can know the comfort and peace that comes only from knowing that the high king of heaven loves you so much that he gave his very life for you. Do you know the comfort and the peace that come only from knowing that Christ is Lord? That's what you gain when you believe the truths of this passage. The second thing we should do, we should follow the lifestyle of this passage. For what it's worth, this is clearly why Paul writes these few verses right here in the middle of Philippians chapter two. And I know that because of what he said in verse five. We skipped it earlier, let's look back at it now. Paul, he describes Jesus in this way immediately after saying in verse five, have this mind, in other words, Jesus' mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul points us to the humility and the glory of Jesus so that we might emulate the humility of Jesus in light of the glory of Jesus. That was a confusing way to say that. Let me put it a slightly different way. The Puritans, they used to say that when the sun comes out, the stars fade. Now, I don't think the Puritans hundreds of years ago had a very comprehensive scientific grasp of what happens to you know, the stars when the sun rises in the morning. I'm not sure that they had like, any kind of like, vision of that in light of the Copernican Revolution or, or anything like that. But the simple point is, they understood that lesser lights fade in light of the glorious light of the sun. And so when the sun, which is brightest, comes out, the lesser lights of the stars fade away. And here's what they meant when they said that. In light of the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, pride disappears. Because our pride, which is those lesser lights, those tiny pricks of light in the night sky, when the glory of Jesus is revealed, those tiny pricks of light cannot be seen anymore. And so Paul commends us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, live humbly like Jesus, and the key to that is to think about the glory of Jesus, so that your lesser light fades into oblivion. And this morning, I just ask you, I mean, imagine what would happen to your relationships if you had this mind among yourselves. 
right? Imagine what would happen in your marriage or in your relationships with your children if you were humble like Jesus and had the attitude of giving and giving and giving rather than grasping and grasping and grasping. What would happen in our church if we preferred one another and loved one another by giving and giving and giving of ourselves rather than grasping and grasping and grasping for ourselves? What would our witness look like to the watching world if we had the mindset of Jesus Christ and we chose to, with one another and with the surrounding community, give and give and give of ourselves rather than grasp and grasp and grasp for ourselves? Imagine what would happen if we didn't cling to our status and our rights, but if instead we were marked by genuine humility just as Jesus Christ is. Oh, what would happen if we followed the lifestyle of this passage? And then the third thing that we should do with these truths is that we should tell the world the truths of this passage. Before it's too late, we should tell the world that there will be a day when every knee bows before Jesus and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. Before it's too late, we should tell the people that we know and love that Christ is Savior and Lord. Before it's too late, when these truths will be terrible to them, we should tell people the good news that Jesus is Lord and Savior so that they might come to know and love and confess him now when it is a joy and not then when it will be terrible to them. May we recognize that in the immense privilege of knowing these truths, there is a critical mission that we must share these truths. Let's do that before it is too late, church. Pray with me. Jesus, I simply pray that we would be moved by your glory as we see it here. I pray that our hearts and minds would be full as we consider who you are revealed to be in these words. And I pray that that fullness would move us to and translate in us to humble obedience. May we believe fully that you are Lord. And may we freely count and pay the cost of that, giving over to you every claim that we might have in our own lives to being Lord of our own lives. And may we find and know the peace that comes only through calling you Lord.